Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. This is from Luke 2, verses 22 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So will you join me in welcoming Joel Nazar to the stage? Thanks. Good morning, everyone. How are you all? Fantastic, fantastic. Well, as Lizzie said, my name is Joel Nazar. I am... Great start. I am one of the leaders of the Blackheath and Greenwich Connect group. We're in the corner. And, uh, and uh, this is my first time speaking at Christchurch London. Um, I've done the notice a few times, and I've been reasoning with myself that surely this is no different. It's just like one long notice. <laughs> Jesus loves you. Uh, <laughs> So we'll see how it goes, but it's quite nice. It's a good turnout this year. Well done, guys. Uh, this is good. <laughs> Follow me around everywhere. Um, but I figured no matter how today goes, it's going to be all right because it is one week till Christmas, and that is very exciting. So you all must be very happy and excited anyway, right? Okay, cool. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited for Christmas. Do you all know what you're getting? Really? I'm hoping for a coat. Uh, that's what I would like. I say I'm hoping for a coat. Uh, we're doing one of these new secret Santas, uh, online secret Santas in my family, where you, can, uh, where you literally get a list and you put in what you want um, uh, online for your secret Santa to buy you. I've only put that coat down, uh, so I'll be a little bit surprised if I don't get it. <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's like that these days, isn't it, with Christmas? The novelty of gift giving has kind of worn off a little bit. Uh, you see, when you kind of become a bit of an adult and you get your own job, you can afford to buy yourself things when you want them every now and again. So Christmas takes a bit of forward planning. You need to stop buying yourself things in October and November and <laughs> prepare yourself for when your family asks. If you like something, send that Amazon wish list right over. <laughs> Done. Mad- Just like when we were kids, really, isn't it? It's lovely. It's lovely. So really, Christmas is actually about saving us money, I think. No, that's a joke. You never save money over Christmas, do you? You have to buy everyone else gifts. So, what a shame, really. <laughs> yeah. The real goal is actually to see whether you can break even, isn't it? Enter the new year with balanced books. No. Again, it's a joke. Uh, that would never happen. Uh, but it's fine, because Christmas is not all about the gifts, is it? No, no. It's another thing you learn when you become an adult. It's about the time of work, actually. Isn't it? No, it is not. But... 
I'm not completely off topic because this is something I would like to speak to you all about today. The idea of expectation and how the feeling that we should expect to receive something at this time of year, or even to go one further and say the feeling that many of us think we know what we're getting isn't completely unrelated to the traditional reason why we celebrate Christmas. You see, the Christmas story is a story wrapped in expectation, not just because it's a birth, and most birthing stories have around nine months of expectation, uh, but because the birth of Jesus is surrounded in an anticipation that has long preceded pregnancy. As Liam was saying earlier on, uh, uh, 700 years ago, prophets were prophesying a Messiah to Israel. And in fact, most of the Bible uh, uh, follows God's chosen people, the Israelites who are longing for and waiting and expecting a king to come and redeem them. Uh, and in the passage that was read so wonderfully by Lizzie uh, moments ago, um, uh, we meet a man called Simeon who is waiting for a Messiah. He's been told he will not die before he sees the Messiah. And this term Messiah basically means uh, uh, king. It means anointed one. It's referring to the king that has been forecasted through the Bible in Israel's history. And as we saw in the passage, or rather as we heard, uh, he very enthusiastically says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And of course, he's saying this in a very spiritual moment when he sees the baby Jesus. And so what he is saying here is that all of the longing and expectation that we see throughout the Bible is being resolved and fulfilled right here in Jesus, this baby boy. Ha, and your parents said you were special. So what I would like to do today is to look at some of these expectations. I want to look at what the, Israels, what the Israelites were expecting in a Messiah. Uh, and I'm going to look at two stories of a time where they ex were expecting a king. And I'm going to compare them and see if we can draw out any insights that might challenge us in the way that we build expectations around this time of year. Does that seem okay with you? Yes. Fantastic. Great. What do you think of the introduction? Good? good. <laughs> Concise? Smooth all the way out? Very good. That's what I like to hear. Don't worry if you didn't get it or you uh, nodded off. Uh, it's like I like Monopoly. We'll learn as we go. Uh, so the first thing you need to understand uh, uh, to appreciate Israel's expectations for their Messiah is that the topic of a king or a Messiah is a very sensitive one for Israel. You see, you have to understand certain points of their backstory. Israel was for a long time not led by a king like other nations had a king. They had leaders, but these leaders were very often ordinary people who God would choose to appoint uh, 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 and speak to and give direction and knowledge to at a time when Israel faced a certain crisis. Uh, and this is how Israel was led for the longest time, up until a point in 1 Samuel. Uh, and so that's where I'm going to go first. I'm going to pick us all up, throw us into the Old Testament, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel. And this book basically tracks the transition of change, where Israel went from being led by a group of priests and judges to establishing its monarchy. And we see the moment this happened, or at least one of the inciting moments, uh, in chapter 8. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites gather together and they tell Samuel, their leader, their priest at the time, they say, next time you go to God, tell him, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the people long for a king, and what they're doing here is they're looking at the nations around them and they are seeing one difference. Every other nation has a king. And we don't. And they're deducing that if we're going to be the greatest nation, as God has promised us, then we surely need a king at the very least. 
Now, this may not seem like a significant request to us, especially in a society where it's often unclear what role the royal family play in governing our country, if any, <laughs> as a joke. Uh, <laughs> but at this point in history, at the point where Israelites are asking for a king, a king is a very significant thing to its nation. A king defines its nation. You see, a nation would be completely under the control of a king. And so a king would be a visible figurehead that people could look to on the land for order and direction. Uh, when the time came for a nation to go to battle, to assert its place in the world for, for prosperity or for protection, a king would be the one to make that choice. And a king would literally pick up the sword and the chariot and lead his people into victory. So you can see facing this historical landscape, it is not completely unreasonable that the Israelites might think that they should get a king. And in many ways, I don't want to focus on the request. What I would like to do is look at what goes on behind the request. Uh, as many of us will know, very often when we ask for things, we're not so much asking for the objects of our request, but rather what those objects can provide us with. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I didn't want a paper round because I was a budding journalist. I wanted one because it would provide me with wealth uh, and status. Um, I lived in a very small village. It was a significant role. Uh, <laughs> So what I want to do is I want to look at what the Israelites are really asking for when they ask for a king. And in many ways, we've kind of already done this by establishing how important a king is to its nation. But I thought we're at church, so I don't know. Let me give you three things uh, that the Israelites are asking for specifically when they say that they want a king. The first of which is identity. Now, we touched on this moments ago. Israel is not just any nation. This is God's nation. These are God's people, and they have been living from their earliest years with promises that they will be the greatest nation in all the earth. And at this point in history, a nation needs a king. And so, quite frankly, they want to be recognized as a nation. They are looking for a king for a sense of identity. They also want security, don't we all? And I mean this in a very practical way. This was a very violent time where nations were literally going to war and displacing other nations. But I also mean this in a... There's a more impersonal interpretation here, I guess. Because actually what a king is is a visible presence on the land that people can look to. And as I said, these people have a lot of promises over them. And it's a lot more helpful for them to see a king on their land to make them feel like they are working towards the fulfillment of these promises. And so they want a sense of security. And finally, they want prosperity. Love this word. Learned this word as I was doing the preach. Uh, they want to flourish, quite simply. They want to have a stable economy where everyone is happy, where there is joy, where there is wealth. And there is nothing wrong with these longings. If anything, these longings are actually very unreasonable. I don't think God would snub any of these things. And in fact, if you line up the promises God has given Israel since the beginning of this nation, you would see that many of them line up with these things. God probably wants these things for them. You see, the issue isn't with the request. The issue is with their expectations. And we see this in God's answer to Samuel. So when Samuel takes this request to God, God replies, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, God's problem isn't with the request. He has no problem understanding and empathizing with the current climate that Israel is in. He knows that a nation needs a king the issue is, is that the Israelites expect a human king to fulfill all of these longings. And actually, God wants to be their king. See, the Israelites long for a king. God longs to be their king. 
And it's very interesting as we continue to read God's response here. See, after the moment he says that they have rejected him as king, he continues and he says, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now doing to you. And this is important because this is the first thing he says after they've rejected him as king. He brings to light a time in Israel's history, a very famous story. You can see the Prince of Egypt for full details on this one, uh, where Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, where they're being oppressed as slaves. And this is a significant event in history because this was a time where Israel's identity shifted. They went from being slaves to free people. This was a time where they got a sense of security. God literally parted an ocean to say, I've got your back. Uh, And they got a sense of prosperity. They flourished out from underneath oppression. And this was a point in history where they got all of their longings fulfilled and they didn't have a human king. They had God as their king working through an ordinary man. You see, the issue is Israelites is the Israelites' expectations. God is saying that he wants to be their king and actually what he's saying is he is more than capable of filling the role. Interesting, right? Great. Well, let's see how this story compares with our second story. So what I want to do is I want to lift you all up, throw you into the Old Testament. We'll leap ourselves 1,050 years roughly into the future. And where are we? Well, we are at the Christmas story. It is the season to be jolly. Well, not quite. You see, if you don't know how the story of 1 Samuel 8 was resolved, they got their king in the end. And it didn't ultimately work out very well for them. See, by the time that we meet them in the uh, New Testament here, They are a displaced people group, the Israelites. They've lived in land that's not theirs. They've been ruled by kings that are not theirs. And that's actually where we currently find them. They are currently being ruled by a king named King Herod, a Roman king. Uh, And if you know anything of King Herod, you will know that this guy is crazy. Uh, He is the worst case scenario of a child whose parents could just not say no. He has too much money, too much power, and is very low on empathy. And once again, we find in this story that the Israelites are longing for a king. They are waiting for this Messiah that they have been told will be coming to redeem them and make them a great nation. And once again, behind this request for a king, we see the same longings. They want identity, they want security, and they want prosperity. And these things aren't wrong. Again, these things aren't unreasonable. These longings still line up with the promises God has given them because those promises haven't changed. You see, it is not the request that is the issue. The issue here is with their expectations. You see, just like in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites have developed a picture of who this Messiah will be. A mighty king, a wealthy king, a king with great heritage, who will be respected among all of the nations. And that's not quite what they get in Jesus. See, once again, they've missed the point because whilst the Israelites long for a king, God longs to be their king. You see, the Christmas story isn't just a story about how God sent a king to earth. The Christmas story is a story about how God himself came to earth to be our king. He came to earth to be the figurehead that people could look to for identity, for prosperity and security. But once again, just as in 1 Samuel 8, that did not look like what people thought it would. You see, the Christmas story is orchestrated in such a way as to say to the Israelites that this Messiah is not going to look like anything they thought he would. 
They were expecting a mighty king. Well, a baby in a manger does not evoke the same image of might. They were expecting a wealthy king. Well, being born around farm animals, it does not evoke the same image of wealth. The Israelites did not get what they were expecting. See, Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah they wanted necessarily, but he was the type of Messiah they needed. He was God. And Simeon knew this in the passage that we read moments ago. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. He knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Israelites' longings. You see, so often we bring to the Christmas story the same term we bring to the Christmas season. It is a time where you get what you want. It is a time where you get what you're expecting. But actually, the Christmas story is a time where God intervened as he promised he would, but he didn't give people what they were expecting. He gave people what they needed. He gave them himself. But the tragedy is here that just as in 1 Samuel 8, when the people asked for a king and rejected God, Simeon knew that the people who asked for a Messiah would reject Jesus. You see, after he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, he turns to Jesus' parents, Mother of Mary, and he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You see, Simeon knew that through Jesus, people's hearts behind their requests would be revealed. Hearts that either want God or hearts that will reject God. And that is evidently what they did. We know this story. They were so offended by the fact that Jesus, a carpenter, would call himself their new king, that they sent him to a cross. They were so offended that an ordinary man would claim to be their leader, they sent him to die. Hmm. And so let's leap forward one final time and look at a new story. We will jump forward roughly 2,000 years, and where do we end up? With us. Approaching 2017. Now, it's very easy to look back at the stories of 1 Samuel 8 and the story of Jesus' birth and life and to think that we know better than the Israelites because we can read them. So we wouldn't make those same mistakes. But do we know any better? You see, none of us are longing for a king, I hope, but we all have requests. We are all longing for things, especially at this time of the year. See, I'm not so much thinking about what's coming up in a week. I'm thinking about what's coming up in two weeks. We have a new year. And whether you're the type of person that builds New Year's resolutions for your year or not, we all, I think, look to the new year as a benchmark for change in our lives. And we start putting expectations and requests on that. 2017 is the year where I get a new car. 2017 is the year where I get a house, where I move cities, where I'm going to change my job. Where I'm going to get this opportunity. Where going to... 2017 is the year where I'm going to get a relationship. And these requests aren't necessarily wrong. These longings aren't wrong. They're not unreasonable. And actually, if you look at the promises God has given to you, quite often it can seem like they line up very well with these requests. But the issue isn't with the request. The issue is with the expectation. See, can any of us confidently say that we don't look to all these changes for a sense of identity, security, or prosperity? I think often we all do. I know I do. 
Many of you may know, or some of you may know, that I got married a year ago. Uh, if you didn't know that, you're probably thinking, what? <laughs> He's like 12. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the prayer, it keeps me young. Um, and when I was engaged, people told me, very wise people, it was Ross and Joy, uh, they told me, do not look to marriage to fulfill you. Do not look to get a sense of identity, security, or prosperity from your marriage. And I think uh, for the larger part, I'm proud to say I didn't do that. But there were certainly parts of my heart that reasoned against Ross and Joy. Never again. <laughs> because actually, there were some thoughts that thought, well, surely I'll get married, and then I will get a sense of identity because I'll be a husband. That's a change of title, right? Surely, I'll get some sort of security because this is a whole new level of companionship, right? Surely, I'll get some sort of prosperity. I mean, she has a job. <laughs> What's mine is yours. <laughs> Do you want to know what the biggest shock of my first few weeks of marriage were? It was not that none of these fulfillments came through my marriage. It was how quickly my expectations that I would be fulfilled in marriage has shifted direction and now look toward a house. It was surreal. I had seen these expectations fail on me, and then I was feeling that actually what I need is a house. A house will give me a sense of identity. A house will give me a sense of security. I need to be a homeowner. That's where the fulfillment is. And you would have thought, because I'm telling you this story now, that maybe I, I got over it. Maybe I, I learned from this. No. I got a help to buy ISA. <laughs> you see, I continually find myself longing for a house, longing for a sense of identity from being a homeowner. And I know this is crazy. I know this is very wrong. And in fact, I know that I would never get this fulfillment in a house. I know that the week that me and my wife do get a house, God help my wife, that will be the week I decide I want kids. <laughs> See, I am not under the presumption that this is a groundbreaking message for anyone. I think that many of us could look back at our lives and think, I have never quite been expected I've never quite been satisfied to the level I expected by the things I sought after. But how easy is it, how easy is it, just like the Israelites, to make this mistake over and over again? And how fortunate are we that one week before our new year starts, one week before a time where many of us run full pelts with our expectations and requests for the new year, how fortunate are we that Christmas is right before it. A time where we can pause and rest and reflect on the message of Christmas. The fact that God longs to be our king. And that is my very short and brief message. God longs to be our king. He longs to be our king so much that he stepped out of heaven into our reality to fulfill our longings to give us what we need, God, to redeem our relationship with God. And he did that at the cross when he took our punishment for the continuous rejection of deciding that we are going to go search for fulfillment in other areas of our lives. And at the same cross, he gave us his life of faithfulness and the fulfillment that faithfulness can earn. How great. However, that's the Easter story, and that's actually not my territory, so I'm going to have to pause there, and I will ask the band to come. Woo! 
Oh, I'll break into song. Don't worry about it. I will ask the bands to come back up and I will leave you with, uh, we're at church. Let's do three very concise points. The message of Christmas is that God longs to be your king and that that is something really, really great. That is something you can really check your expectations against. The second thing is Merry Christmas. Have a great time. Eat lots, sleep as much as you can, open lots of presents if you have them. And the third thing I would like to leave you with is, uh, just in case it wasn't clear, uh, Jesus loves you. Um, And that is me. Why don't we all stand and I shall give us a prayer before we are led in another worship song. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org.